0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing you the latest news in the world of business and finance.
0: And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
1: You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.
2: I know. What the
0: I know a few places that Amazon is interested in when it comes to building its second headquarters. And in fact, Amazon putting out its very long short list of cities for that uh, possible next headquarters. Let's uh, talk about this story and another interesting one by our own Spencer Soper. He's technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our bureau in Seattle. Also joining our conversation, Bob O'Donnell, president and chief analyst at Technalysis Research. Uh, Bob on the phone from Foster City, California. Spencer, let's kick it off with you. Uh, So Amazon coming out with this list um, that uh, where it might uh, build that second quarter. There's a lot second head quarters. There's a lot of cities on this list.
3: Yeah, that's why it's hard to see this as much more than an administrative cleanup for Amazon. Um, They have more than 200 applications. And we we can be certain that uh, email inboxes of the people overseeing this process were overflowing daily with people checking in for updates. And they really had to just kind of narrow the list. But but 20 isn't very narrow. So I think think they basically just shed a lot of the long shots so that they, they had to no longer engage with them.
1: Bob O'Donnell, give us your thoughts on this uh, long short list and what you glean or what can you take away from it. Are there any insights?
4: Well, I mean, look, there's a there's an obvious geographical split that I think the company's going to want to make. And you could see there is a focus more uh, on the center and east of the country, uh, which makes logical sense for a, a number of different reasons. Obviously, uh, Bezos owning the Washington Post uh, would suggest interest around D.C., and there's a number of places around the D.C. area. Austin is a hot-growing area uh, in the middle of the country with a lot of tech happening. Uh, there's a lot of lower-cost uh, towns from a housing perspective, depending on how Bezos is thinking from that perspective in terms of influencing the country. I mean, there's so many ways. Uh, you know, and like Spencer said, I mean, really, you went from this crazy list down to a list that I think almost anybody could have put together. Uh, yet there's still so many choices within there. It's hard to say for sure where this is going to go.
0: So, Spencer, is this about, you know, now playing these 20 cities or so, you know, off against one another for an even better deal? Or can we start to... As kind of observers of this process, start to think about some key metrics. Whether it's access to a lot of workers, um, transportation, can we start to put together our own kind of shortlist based on what we what, what we can be pretty sure that uh, Amazon's going to need?
3: Yeah, I think that's definitely one takeaway. Is there's the, 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 they definitely need body count. They need big. Labor pools. So this notion of them going to some sleepy community where people can buy a house for $150,000 is is definitely moving off of the spectrum and building from scratch. They they need a place with a big labor market that they can um, that they can draw from. That, that's, one, that's one takeaway. And then in terms of uh, – uh, but, the, but the field is still large enough that they can still wield a lot of leverage and play people against one another. The danger of making the list of finalists too small, if they identified two or three, those, those geographies, uh, you know, smart mayors and governors in those places might unite and say, listen, let's not give away the farm and set some limits on ourselves. With 20, that's not going to happen.
1: Well, Bob, maybe you could come in on this because is there a case to be made that Jeff Bezos, uh, by some measure, the richest man in the world, and Amazon stock not doing too poorly, why should cities like Newark be offering $7 billion in tax breaks? Why do cities such as Columbus and Montgomery County, Maryland, why do they all all need to offer taxpayer money in order for a private corporation to profit because that's even what Amazon has said they want land site preparation and tax credits does this make any sense well.
4: I mean, look, sure, you have to think long term. I mean, this is a company that's going to be around for a very long time. And the influence that they're going to have on the entire region is going to be dramatic. I mean, there's a lot of... Yeah, but why should you hollow out your
1: tax base in Mm -hmm. order to try to get them to do it with this long term plan? A lot of these cities need the money now.
4: Well, I, I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, they're also trying to think longer term and saying, look, we make the investment as it were now because we think we're going to get a longer term payoff. I think that has to be the logic that they have. The question is how far are they willing to go?
0: Well, it's interesting, too. I think it was Business Week that did a story, I think it might have been last year, that talked about all of the breaks that are given to tech companies in various communities and how those communities often don't get it back. So, you know, it makes you kind of think about this maybe twice. Uh, it's
4: no different than, like, the sports team stuff, right? Correct. I mean, you could make the same arguments there.
0: Right. Exactly. Hey, um, while we're discussing Amazon, because I guess we're just going to have to wait and see, and, and you can certainly debate whether or not it's going to be a good thing, ultimately, longer term for uh, a city. Um, Spencer, you've got a story about Amazon and their plan to become profitable, and you say it's called advertising. Uh, is that kind of uh, the magic uh, that uh, will ultimately get Amazon into a steady path of profitabil- profitability?
3: Well, it's definitely caught the attention of a lot of analysts, and they're excited about the profit potential because if you look at their core business, they've they've been building this e-commerce business for more than two decades, and it's still extremely expensive to to let people shop online and deliver things to their doorstep. It's, it's uh, a very low-margin business. Now, their cloud computing division business came along and helped help subsidize e-commerce growth, and now along we have we have advertising. They have this huge platform that attracts millions of people to shop for things. So they're already in a buying mode. This is a way to build a very profitable business on on top of that. Um, Amazon's been very cautious about it, not wanting to to take away from the customer experience. They don't want it to be seen as a place where you're bombarded with ads, but they're starting to find a stride here and and grow that advertising business. And that's definitely got investors excited about them solving their profit problem.
1: Amazon shares, do you know that they are up 11% so far this year?
0: And that's on top of a 56% gain last year. Indeed, Nice ride.
1: Not bad if, if you can <laughs> do it. Right. <laughs>
0: exactly. Our thanks to Bob O'Donnell, President Chief Analyst at Technalysis Research, on the phone from Foster City, California, friend here of Bloomberg Radio, Spencer Soper, our technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News, from our bureau in Seattle. Check out all of his work on Amazon at Spencer Soper on Twitter and at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Radio.
4: Teach. Children well, their fathers
1: well the uh, city of Los Angeles seems to be teaching its uh, student student population at least better uh, the Los Angeles Unified uh, school system had a graduate rate of its high school students that was up 5 percentage points uh, in 2017 to 77%. That's according to data that was uh, compiled by the California Department of Education. And uh, now let's meet someone who is helping to make that possible. Melanie Lundquist is a real estate investor and philanthropist, co-founder, vice chair of the board of the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, and her efforts can be followed on Twitter at PartnershipLA. Melanie Lundquist, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us about your pleasure to the uh, L.A. school system and what you hope to achieve.
5: Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it enormously. Um, Our efforts are to uh, transform our Los Angeles public school system. And 10 years ago, we made a $50 million donation um, investment, I call them, uh, in this effort. And uh, today we... um, released our public impact report on our 10-year results. And uh, we also today added 35 million more for another 10 years um, to work on uh, changing the system uh, so that it better serves all of our students and it raises our um, educational level uh, for our students uh, in in our schools. I'm curious what you've
0: learned so far in doing this um, with the L.A. schools in the area. And and you guys are really going after those schools that most need it uh, or underserved. Tell me what you've learned that you think can be applied more broadly. Because I feel like, Melanie, we spend an awful lot of money on public education. We do. And yet we have a lot of kids who really aren't prepared um, for the workforce, for life. They don't get the education that they need. No,
5: they, they don't get the education they need at all. Um, our cost is $650 per student per year, which is all paid by philanthropic dollars. And um, uh, we have learned that, um, um, first of all, one of the most important things, I think, it can be done. It really can be done. Now, nobody else in the country is using the model that we are we are using. There's one organization in Chicago that comes somewhat close. What's the model? But nobody What is the model? The model, well, the model is to work inside the school district. We are not a charter school. Organization. So we work inside the school district from the bottom up and the inside out. You can't change a system if you don't work inside the system. That makes it harder because you have more obstacles inside the system than if you were not working inside the system. Um, So we've learned that, A, it can be done, B, you have to work inside the system, and there are constraints, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, that's the advantage, is you learn what the constraints are and how you will deal with them in a financially sustainable way.
1: Now, Melanie, one of the things I note that the Los Angeles Unified School District has done is they have created something called credit recovery courses. These are courses that are designed to make it much quicker uh, for students to pull up their grades and graduate if they perhaps have missed courses or they, for some reason, were out of school. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that program and how that fits into what you're doing.
5: Well, the credit recovery program, and you know, I, when I speak about this, I speak about it from the practical standpoint as far as human beings, as well as what does it deliver. And from the practical standpoint, you have children that are not being successful, and they lose hope, and then they drop out. If you can show them a way that you will help them to graduate on time then they are much more interested in staying in school. So this, our, our uh, graduation rate when we started was around um, 36% in our schools. We are now, 10 years later, at 81%, hmm. which is above the district average. And we have eliminated, not narrowed, but eliminated the achievement gap. Our schools are all among the lowest Pretty much all of them are in the lowest 5% of performance when we take them. They're all in mm-hmm. the inner city, and they all have a tremendous need.
0: It's it's fascinating to hear hear what you, you folks are doing. Um, and hopefully you'll come back and, and give us an update uh, in the near future. Melanie, thank you so much for finding time for us. Melanie Lundquist, she is a real estate investor and philanthropist, co-founder and vice chair of the board of the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. As she mentioned, $50 million that she and her husband have given over the past decade and uh, adding another $35 million to that contribution. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: Back in time, David Wilson is here. Bloomberg Stocks, columnist, blogger at MLive, go on the Bloomberg. And, of course, you can send Dave an email at at Bloomberg.net and sign up for his daily free email a newsletter. And, Dave, let's compare commodities versus stocks.
6: You have to go back in time to really see periods in which commodities kind of ruled the roost. 1974, 1990, 2008. You know, Jeff Gunlack over at Double Line Capital has been talking about a uh, potential resurgence in energy and metals and agriculture and commodities more generally. And it's a theme that uh, U.S. Global Investors uh, CEO Frank Holmes picked up on in a blog posting this week. And what he did is compare uh, a commodity gauge, the S&P GSCI Total Return Index, with the S&P 500. And when you run those numbers, you find out that you you can go back to the 70s and you had a record low for this ratio in June. So, you know, we're talking about the lowest valuations on commodities in relative terms in something like 50 years at least. And it's picked up a bit since then, rebounded 11%, this ratio has, through yesterday. Holmes is looking for more, though. He's anticipating that you get something like what you call mean reversion, the whole idea that something that's more in line with historical norms uh, shows up. Now, of course, there's more than one way to make that happen. Mm. You can have uh, stocks go down. You can have commodities go up. Uh, you look at those peaks from years ago, though, and you ask yourself, how do did we get there? Well, you had oil in the 70s. You had metals at the beginning of the 90s, and you had oil again in 2008. So, what's happening in the commodity markets may have more influence going forward. And uh, you know, since U.S. global investors has a, have a few commodity-based funds, they certainly have an interest mm-hmm. in. Uh, Seeing some kind of a revival here. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at Bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at Bloomberg.net.
0: Right. We've had Jeff Goodlock come out and say that maybe commodities may be one of the best investments this year. Kind of Absolutely. the late phase of the economic cycle. Dave Wilson, as always, chart of the day. Great stuff. This is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> All right, if you don't know what that theme is all about, then, you know, just just go away. <laughs> because, of course, it's Star Wars. Uh, and it's been such a, a bankable saga, if you will, certainly at the box office. But when it comes to making toys off of it, mm, that's kind of slowing down in terms of the popularity. Let's talk to Matt Townsend. He's a global business reporter at Bloomberg News. It's a Bloomberg News exclusive. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here with Pim Fox and myself. So what's going on, Matt?
7: Yeah, today we reported that uh, Star Wars, uh, sales of Star Wars toys, uh, missed expectations in the holiday shopping season, and then we learned that uh, they were actually down from a year ago. And, you know, the, the big picture here is that Star Wars, you know, is kind of the is the franchise movie franchise that kicked off this whole phenomenon of tying toys to movies. And basically, this is really worrying the toy industry because if Star Wars is slowing down and sort of the bankability and, and, you know, how, how, mu- how much you, revenue you can generate from tying a, a toy to a movie like this, if that doesn't work as well as it used to, then what does that say about all these other movies that are trying to do the same thing? Um, so it's, it's, it's a worrisome thing. And we saw that, uh, you know, Hasbro's stock, which has the, ma- the main toy license for, for Star Wars, declined today. And Disney was down a little bit for a while, too. So it's definitely of concern for the companies and the investors in those companies.
1: Well, Matt, is this uh, just because adults are more willing to spend to regain their youth by collecting these Star Wars figures and the paraphernalia, whereas younger people, they don't necessarily have that tie to the legacy movies?
7: That's right. Yeah, that's that's basically what we say in the story is that. The action figures or whatever, the lightsabers that are aimed at the collector's market, which is basically the adults that grew up with it, you know, the Gen Xers out there, uh, That still does okay, does well uh, for the companies making those products. But for the stuff aimed at kids, it's not doing as well. And and, the reason is, we get into the story, is that just like you've seen in Hollywood, they've become obsessed with comic book movies and movies on science fiction and rebooting old sort of nostalgic movies and making sequels. There's this glut of kids focused films. There was over 20 of them last year with big toy tie-ins, and that was the most ever. And what we saw is that basically one one is coming out every couple of weeks, and so a kid's attention is just, you know, going from the next thing to the next thing, and they all kind of drown each other out. And even with a franchise like Star Wars, which had a huge box office the last Jedi, we there was disappointment in the toy sales. So that's not good and then we know that this year there's even more of these toy, these movies coming out with toy tie-ins so another glut of these kinds of films
0: right and it's a paradigm as you guys write it's it's worked for a long time but now it may maybe there's something different just got about 15 seconds
7: yeah it's worked for it's the most bankable sort of business model the toy industry's had mm. and the big toy makers Hasbro especially is tied to all these franchises you know the spider-man's and the and the Marvels and all those so right it is of concern and, you know, basically reflects what's going on in media. Kids, like adults, everyone else we are go. consuming media through other places.
0: we got lots of choices, that's for sure. Matt Townsend, global business reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you. I'm
3: How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please,
1: I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive.
6: Just drive, so Just drive baby.
1: Helping us drive to the close is Margie Patel, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. Margie, thank you very much for being with us. I want to pose a question to you, which is that if we see interest rates increase, which we are seeing at least right now, the 10-year at 2.62%, if we see interest rates increase, Do you believe that high-yield investors will not be compensated for the increased risk they're taking, determined by how much they're actually making?
2: No, I think they still will be compensated. Two reasons, I think. The further interest rate increases, we'll see, will be in that shorter part of the curve, uh, two, three, uh, maybe out to five-ish. So that will hurt more the very, very short maturity bonds. But secondly, uh, high-yield fundamentals look terrific. Defaults are heading towards 2%, and the economy is growing. Uh, High-yield companies have improved their balance sheets just as investment-grade companies. So I think for the extra, say, 3.5 percentage points they get, they will be able to keep that enough lose it to default. So I think spreads will narrow, meaning treasuries can continue to push up. High-yield bonds will continue to hold their value.
1: All right. So if they're going to hold their value, is there any possibility that higher rates will cause people to even add to their holdings of these high-yield bonds?
2: I think it's a possibility because they still yield a lot more than the average dividend yield of stock. They still yield more than very short-term securities or uh, money market funds, things like that. So I think that until you see some real erosion in principal value, which I think certainly won't see till – Sometime late in the second half of the year, I think people will still be drawn to that extra return, especially because, ironically, as equities hit new highs, people are nervous about, is this a top? Will they lose money in equities? So high yield looks like a nice place to be while you figure out where the market's going.
0: You know, Pim Fox, um shared with me, Margie, uh, a note from uh, Bill Rhodes, formerly of Citibank. And he's just basically saying, hey, you know, folks, investors, you are ignoring a lot of things that are out there in the marketplace. And he's concerned about some kind of significant correction about, you know, along 10 to 20 percent. He talks about concerns of China being able to maintain growth, uh, changes in global monetary policy and and in particular, you know, uh, a Fed that's been very accommodative uh, and other things that are out there. How do you look at this marketplace? Has it gotten a little crazy, especially on the equity side of things?
2: I don't think so, because I think that companies are still growing earnings, they're still on average growing revenues a little, maintaining those very high profit margins. And we have not even begun to see the effects of the tax increase, which will be not only directly for companies, but also when workers start to get wage increases, when workers become a little more productive and so they can have non-inflationary wage increases. So I think we haven't even begun to see the full positive effects. So I think that we could see Equities, again, confound their critics and be up another double-digit uh, year again, 10 15% or so.
1: And are you looking for increases in S&P 500 earnings? Do you have a number there?
2: Oh, I think call it 10% is a good enough number for the market overall. So, uh, in other words, reflecting a little bit of growth, um, maintaining the high profit margins. And so I think that we'll see another year, just like 17 surprised people. I think 18 will be another year that surprised people. I think there are a lot of people that are still very nervous about the potential of a big correction, which I don't see. I don't see any catalyst for anything more than a 3% in, in, in correction, which is all we've seen in the last couple of years.
0: What about China, though? If we start to see some kind of a more significant uh um, Um, reduction in terms of the growth? I mean, they're obviously still growing, but it's not been as strong as we've seen. And I think this is actually coming on a day where we've actually had some upbeat uh, news out of China. But if we start to see something uh, slow down in that story, as President Xi puts in, you know, more regulations and reforms, how problematic would that be to the global economy and to global markets?
2: I don't think China is going to be a problem because they still are growing. The growth is going to be decelerating because it's a huge economy. And uh, I think that unless you see them slam on the brakes over there, I think that we'll see more of the same. China continues to be one of the leaders in pulling up growth rates for other countries. So no, I, I don't see the China explosion theory really causing any problem for investors.
1: Do you see that commodity prices will increase in therefore commodity-based companies or even commodity-based currencies are worth investing in?
2: Well, they have done pretty well this year because commodities have had a pretty good bounce back. But I think that, again, reflects abnormally low levels. But my feeling is, where can they really go from here? Uh, We still have ample supplies. They're a pretty small part of certainly developed countries, and so I think that they um, they may continue to see prices more or less firm around here, but with China being the big demander of commodities across the board, their economy gradually evolving away from that heavy commodity base, mm-hmm. I think the pressure will be mild.
0: All right, Margie Patel, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, on the phone from Boston.
2: Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth. Moves
5: like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake.
1: Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose.
6: He's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more. But that name cracked me up.
1: Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Time to take a look at some of the names on the move in the Thursday trade. Uh, We've got uh, Carol Masser here with Pim Fox and uh, S&P 500, 186 names in the index higher today, 318 lower, one unchanged. Let's talk... A little bit more about uh, shares of Viacom because they were the number two gainer in the S and P 500, up six and a quarter percent, up more than or up about two bucks to thirty three dollars ninety five cents a share. Meantime, CBS was up almost two percent to sixty dollars, even. Les Moonves, uh, the head of CBS, defying the odds a year ago by resisting the Redstone family's plan to combine CBS, combine it back, I should say, with Viacom. But now a rising tide of media consolidation really forcing. Mr. Moonvest, to reassess his options. So uh, Sherry Redstone, who's the vice chairman of CBS, really pushing Moonvest, who is the CEO of CBS, to once again consider a merger with Viago- Viacom to combine the two companies uh, that her family uh, controls. And Moonvest is open to exploring a Viacom deal, Pam, according to people familiar with the matter.
1: Well, have to see what happens there yes, at CBS. Uh, shares of Boeing down a little bit more than 3% today. Uh, Boeing, of course, in uh, sort of... Uh, back and forth with Embraer, the uh, Brazilian aerospace manufacturer. Uh, Embraer deal is said to create a split within the Brazilian government and uh, a report from Reuters saying that Boeing is willing to keep Brazil's golden share in Embraer in order to overcome objections uh, from the Brazilian government. And this comes at the same time that uh, Boeing has been reporting a huge backlog in its 737 aircraft and orders continue. Once again, Boeing, though, shares down about 3% today.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, Wyndham. That stock, number three gainer in the S&P 500, up 4.8% to $122.73 a share. So that's a gain of $5.60 a share. Wyndham Worldwide agreeing to buy La Quinta Holdings, a hotel franchise and management business, for about a $1 billion in cash, adding that brand to a lineup that includes Wyndham Grand, Dave Zinn, uh, Ramada, also Howard Johnson. So La Quinta shareholders receiving $8.40 a share in cash. Wyndham will repay about $750. Fifteen million dollars of La Quinta's debt. Uh, the company putting that out uh, in a statement today. So a little bit of deal in the uh, hospitality industry, Pim.
1: And in the chip industry, Texas Instruments. The shares down about two and a quarter percent. This comes after the company announces their next. President and Chief Executive Officer will be Brian Crutcher. He is a 22 year veteran of Texas Instruments and he succeeds the current President and Chief Executive Rich Templeton. He will transition out of the current roles over the next four months. He will remain the company's chairman. And once again, the shares of Texas Instruments down today two and a quarter.
0: Just got a couple of headlines from American Express uh, crossing the Bloomberg. They are reporting uh, their latest quarterly results here after the close. American Express, fourth quarter adjusted EPS of $1.58 a share. That's four pennies better than what Wall Street was forecasting. And a little bit of an outlook. The company's saying it sees fiscal year adjusted EPS of $6.90 to $7.30 a share. And the estimate that's out theres Seven is 738. thirty-eight. Yeah, seven
1: thirty-eight. Also uh Also, talking about, as you said, fourth quarter revenue, uh, a little bit... Uh, higher um 8 $8.84 billion. So let's just call it $8.8 billion versus mm-hmm. expectations of uh, $8.7 billion. So a beat right now, at least, for American Express. And
0: they're just down about four-tenths. Ah, forgive me. Just down about one-tenth of a percent now in the after hours. So, so far, we're just seeing a little bit of movement. Hey, IBM also coming out with their earnings just crossing the terminal. Let's uh, walk through those numbers. Uh, fourth quarter revenue, $22.5 billion. Uh, that is a little bit better than the estimate of $22.06 billion that was out there. Fourth quarter EPS, $5.18 a share, PIM, and that's a penny better. And then fourth quarter adjusted gross margin, 49.5%. A little bit shy, uh, almost a full percentage point. In fact, uh, of the estimate that was out there, they were looking. Uh, that estimate was for 50.8 percent, and just a quick And also, out,
1: I just mentioned that IBM announcing that they're going to be taking that one-time. You know, a lot of companies having right. to deal with the tax overhaul plan. Uh, that they announced a one-time charge of five and a half billion dollars associated with the uh, tax reform plan.
0: And IBM shares uh, right now just up about six tenths of a percent. Now up one percent in the after-hours trade. All right, let's get to the volatility index report for this. Thursday, the VIX, it is up 1.2% at the close. The VIX closing at 12.06. This is Bloomberg Radio.
4: All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave?
1: We're going for a price on
4: Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr.
1: Wilson! Hey, Mr. Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks' calmest. Let's talk about your stock of
6: the day. Tell us. Absolutely. PTC helps its customers TCB with CAD, PLM, and the IoT. Put them all yeah. together and you get the alphabet, huh? And yeah, pretty much that's how uh, D&B Hoovers describes the stock of the day: PTC, uh, software maker company used to be Parametric Technology. They shortened their name, and uh, by the way, the stock's ticker is also PTC. Then there's TCB, as in taking care of business, which companies certainly do. CAD, or CAD, is computer-aided design. PLM is product lifecycle management. Pimplex, is he showing off or what? Which starts with an (laughs) item's introduction and ends when it's sold or discontinued. IoT is the Internet of Things or the network of devices with online connections. And PTC makes software to help in all those areas. A company went public in 1989. The shares peaked in the late 90s like a lot of other technology companies and then plunged as an internet-related boom went bust. It's only now that the stock is returning to its glory days. Today, PTC rose to its highest price since March 2000 after reporting fiscal first quarter results. Revenue beat analysts' average estimate in the Bloomberg survey by the widest margin in three years, Earnings top projections and order booking surpassed the high end of the company's forecast. You put that all together, PTC was up as much as 12% in today's trading. While the stock did back off as the day went on, it closed higher by 4.9%.
1: And also just to mention, it's based in Needham, Massachusetts.
6: There you go, just See?
1: outside of Boston. That's right. I just like to localize it when we can. And uh, shares of PTC, as you mentioned, they're up 15% year-to-date.
0: Needham M.A. Throw in a couple more initials for you guys. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
1: You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser. I'm at Corey TV.